0: He's going to come and talk to you for a day and a half, so um, if you have a seat here, you've got your mic on already, it is. and I'm going to grab this over here, and you just kind of put your notes down, and um, we'll just we're will just we going to chat for a minute. Um,
1: Pretty exciting so far, isn't it?
0: Yeah. <laughs> if you'd fallen over that, it would have been even more exciting. It would have been uh, better.
1: Great. Um, I, I do remember him as a student. He would sleep uh, most uh, of the class, and... And, and other students would, would poke him and he'd drool on the desk. It was it was terrible. <laughs> uh, that's,
0: that's just every student. Uh is your mic on?
1: Yes, I uh, yes okay. it is. I think so. Very
0: good. Well hey, um, yeah, we just want to take a few minutes. Uh, one, so you can breathe. I mean flying and then you and I grab dinner real quick and then you know, rushing you, you know, to get your makeup on and that kind of thing. Um, so uh, but uh, we, we don't, just want to introduce a little bit of your story um, and, and where you come from even before you begin sharing with us. So tell us a little bit of your background. Where, where, where'd you grow up? Um, what part of the country? Um,
1: yeah. I, I, was, uh, I was born in Opelika, Alabama. My dad worked at Auburn University. <laughs> <laughs> was War Eagle. Uh, my dad worked at Auburn when I was a kid, and, uh, uh, and so I, I was born not that far from here, uh, and then, uh, but my dad was an academic, and so he uh, was a little bit restless, and every couple of years, didn't know the Lord, and every couple of years, he would he would think that he could do better someplace else, and would, uh, and would, would. Oh, and so we moved almost like a military family. Every few years, we, he would, probably tournament happens, I, I choose teams based on the ones that I've lived close to, but I started at Auburn, <laughs> uh, went to Columbia in New York City, and then... Ohio State, Kansas State, Northern Illinois University, uh, Youngstown State University. So I, I kind of knew the knew the world through universities because that's what my dad—that's where he worked. So, that, but so it was not a Christian family I grew up in. Um, it, but um, but God was uh, I was starting to tell a story then, even so. Uh, but that would be where I started.
0: Cool. And tell us so how, how did you come to the words.
1: Um, it was really through a, a campus ministry um, that reached my brother. I have an older brother who uh, came home one day and and, and and said, you know, you need to know about this and shared Christ with me. Um, and uh, my, my dad, my dad believed in churchmanship uh, as an academic. He believed that church was good for society. Um, he just really didn't believe a lot. Uh, he grew up in, he grew up fairly poor in Alabama and, his his brother was killed when he was very young, and my dad remembers a southern preacher standing up at the funeral and saying, "Don't go to hell like this man. You follow Jesus," and and that 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 kind of turned my dad off a little bit to faith uh, issues of faith, um, and he. Um, and so he was not that excited when his son came home and said, Dad, you've been wrong all these years. Um, have I got some news for you? Um, but I, I became a Christian through uh, a campus ministry and my older brother, who became a Christian and led me to Christ. That's a
0: cool. cool story. Um, tell us about um, your family just a bit, um, your, your wife, how you all meet, and then you about your kids?
1: Um, I've got a wife and three kids. Um, Skyler, Pierce, and Kim. Um, Skyler is 28, and uh, he's autistic, and he will live with us. I think in my most common prayer is that we'll outlive him by one day. Uh, but he is—he's uh, my oldest son, and then Kim and and Pierce uh, are my next two kids. Both of them are—they're in their there's 23 and 24 uh, for their ages. Um, and my wife, Mona. And um, we met um, going to a church um, th- at the University of Tennessee. She was, uh, um, she was, uh, she was going to school, and I was, I was coaching high school basketball. I know you, you could tell I was just an elite athlete. Uh, <laughs> when you saw me step over the cord, you immediately <laughs> thought... You immediately thought this man is an athlete, <laughs> um, but uh, that's where we met. Uh, we met her going to we met at church. Um, I went to a church that planted the church that she went to, and, and they would get together monthly. And so we we met at one of their monthly meetings, and the rest is history. I guess. Very
0: good. Cool. Well, I, last question I, I think um, is. Just tell us a little bit about um, your, your ministry journey. Like, what brought you to the place where you're at, where you're head of counseling program at Reform Theological Seminary, teaching there? Um, what's, what, what's the journey looked like?
1: Well, I started out, as I said, coaching basketball. And what I was amazed at, uh, when I, in an inner-city setting, were the, these kids, how, how broken their lives were and how, um, how conflicted their stories of life were. And, and, and I became, all of a sudden, started becoming more concerned about their lives than about how we played basketball, which is probably not a good thing for a coach, but a great thing uh, if you want to have your life echo into eternity. And, um, and so I started, uh, started spending time trying to figure out, um, partly in my own life, figuring out how to, how do, how do you change the story? Um, and how do, how do you change the story of kids who have, have so little in some ways? Um, how do you change your own story when there's been trauma and struggle and, and disappointment? And how do you deal with, with that? Um, I grew up in a Christian, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, so when I became a Christian, the group that, I, I, that was discipling me kind of talked like Christianity meant that you were never unhappy or you never struggled. And that wasn't my experience. Um. And it wasn't the experience of anybody that I knew. <laughs> so, uh, so I thought, there must be more to this gospel story <laughs> than pretending. Um, and I'm not sure that Jesus died on the cross so we could pretend. I think he died on the cross so we could live um, and live differently. And so um, it was during that season I started trying to, how do you, how do you deal with people's <laughs> lives, my own students, my own life? My own family, uh, then having a um, a son with autism, um, and trying to figure out—just didn't think we had the capacity um, to parent him. Um, You know, people say things like, "God gives special kids to special people," but I always thought that God trusted us way too much, Um, and I've always wondered how do we do this. And so I needed more than just uh, platitudes and. And I found that my students needed more than just platitudes. And so uh, I, I thought at first I'll, I'll, get, I'll learn um, academically, which would have been my background, um, about how to help people. And so I got a secular degree in counseling and found it to be, I, I think psychology asks great questions. They just don't have good answers. Um, they ask great questions about meaning and purpose, and how do we live, and why we live, and we, they, they just do great research on the impact of trauma on your life and all those things, but they don't have very good answers. Um, and so I was I was enamored by the by wanting to figure out, being willing to continue to ans- ask hard questions, but trusting that the Bible and that uh, the the gospel and the uh, that there's answers for those questions. Um, that really matter, and so the so the journey f- began with um, with trying to find some answers to change some stories that were kind of not working for people, and and uh, and then shifted to uh, um, to trying to put together my faith with the field of counseling in a way that um, that was true to how hard life can sometimes be, but also true to how um, how gracious God can be and realizing that we're much worse than most of us think we are and God's much better than most of us can imagine and to be thinking about um, how, you, how you engage someone's life for change uh, was, was started becoming what I wanted to study and what I wanted to know. And, um, and so that's kind of... Yeah, I, if you want to take a nap right now, we could go a little longer with that story, but I ended up... Um, <laughs> You know, aren't you glad you rushed here from work? (laughs) And and then when I was seven, (laughs) I ran away with a circus. (laughs) But all all that to say, um, I I would say that my life story has been sovereign stumbling. God has been sovereign, and I've kind of stumbled at times, but have, have become very curious about how we can be honest about the struggles of life, but also honest about the truth of the gospel and that one doesn't contradict the other doesn't contradict the goodness of God that life is hard matter of fact the Bible is full of lament people talking about how hard it is and it doesn't contradict how hard it is to talk about how good God is and somehow wanting to, to think through that well in my life has been kind of a, a place where I've been curious and interested so that would be the, that would be it Thanks for coming. We uh, it's been a <laughs> it's been a good seminar. I hope. Be sure to fill out your evaluations.
0: Well, with that, uh, let's let's do this. Can I pray for you? Please, what, please what I do. The privilege of doing that. And then, um, and then I'm going to get out of the way, and you just you just start, do your thing. All right. Lord Jesus, um, I am I, uh, I'm just so grateful, God, that you're a, you're a God who writes stories. Um. And, Lord, I am really I, I, I come into this weekend with great anticipation um, for my own heart and for the heart of those in this room. And, you know, I've been praying for these, these folks. Um, oh, gracious Heavenly Father, would you be so merciful? We invoke your presence now. We ask for your Holy Spirit to be in our midst. That um, as your word goes out, um, as you use your servant, one who is spirit and dwelt in Dr. Cofield, who um, knows your word. And as your child, Lord, I pray that you would use him um, to speak to us in such a way that we would come to understand, um, as he was just talking about, that uh, the ability to have both lament and also see the goodness of God. And that, with that, coming to terms with that and beginning to understand that in our own lives would just be a means of this weekend of giving us sweet joy in Jesus and great hope um, for where you're taking us. So, Lord, we, we, just, we, we ask for you to do your sweet work in this room this weekend. And we ask all these, these requests in the name of the precious Son, Jesus. Amen.
1: Um, I, first of all, thanks for coming. Um, I realize you've worked all week, and a lot of you are tired um, and I've, I'm just humbled that you're here, and, and my prayer has been that this would be times that would really matter. Um, and, and, the, the, and wouldn't it be, oh, wouldn't it just be amazing um, if, if 2,000 years from now, in eternity, that the conversations that we have this weekend together would matter in such a way that, 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 that maybe they would even echo into those places so far from now. So with that, just a couple of quick thoughts about story. Um, beforehand, let me just tell you a, kind of an interesting story about my son Skyler this week. Uh, literally, it was last Thursday night, Skyler came home, he goes to a program three days a week, a special program three days a week called Visni. Um and Skyler's forever seven years old. He's got the soul of a 28-year-old man. He longs to make a difference in the world. He longs for everything that a 28-year-old soul would want as a man. He, that, that's, that's who he is. But he's got the mind of a seven-year-old. So, so sometimes that, that, that discrepancy kind of uh, stirs his soul a little bit. And so at the end of this, he, he came home from Visney and he was kind of frustrated. And Mona said, what's, what's wrong, Skyler? He says, you know what's wrong at that place? And, you know, Mona said, no, what's wrong? She says, they don't realize I'm a hero. (laughs) And I thought, wow. Um, What's innate inside his soul? I mean, what's so deep in him that a seven-year-old mind knows that it's true, that it's true, that there's something innate in him, and there's something as he evaluated his experience, was, I think I was made for something heroic. I think my life is supposed to matter, and these people, they don't realize I'm a hero. Uh, then he proceeded to take a, a plastic sword um, and tear up our shrubbery. Um, <laughs> um, you know, that's in you too. There's a part of you that looks at your life and, and you say, I, I, could I dream of living a story that mattered? Could I dream of living a story of redemption? Could I dream of, of my life mattering in, in a way that was significant? It's in you. You'll see a movie and it'll stir you. They'll, you'll see a story that that'll, you'll read a novel and it'll stir you and there's, you'll see something and you'll think, I wonder if I could do that. I wonder what I would do in such a situation. Would I have the courage to be that kind of man or that kind of woman or would I? And because it's in you, God put that in you. God's an incredible author. He tells an amazing story. There's a reason that all good movies and all good stories are about redemption because that's one of the themes of his, all of his story. And therefore, when you see a redemptive story, there's something that, that stirs in you. But I want to suggest to you that there's a story war going on in your life um, between um, a God who began the story of creation and glory, that you were made for glory. You know it. Lewis said it, Remember? when he said, there's a point you come to in life where you realize you were made for more than this. No matter how good you think you have it here, there's, a, there's something wrong with everything on this side of heaven. And you know that. And there's something in you that stirs and knows that you want to live a grand story. And so God begins the story, the redemptive story. The arc of the Bible begins with creation and beauty and longing and hope. It's what we're made for. Now, quickly, God's story that he retells in your life takes a turn and sin enters into that story. And it's what theologians call the fall and and because of the fall, the story shifts. And that's where the story war begins there's an evil one who wants to hijack the story of glory that God wants to tell in your life. And instead, he wants to tell a story of isolation. All of the evil one's stories, the theme will be isolation, loneliness, brokenness. God's stories always end with connection, redemption, and hope, denouement. And... And there's a war in your life between the false story of Satan that tries to tell you that you don't matter, what you've done uh, makes you disqualified, that tells you that you need to hide everything and be isolated. See, the evil one is trying to tell a story of destruction. See, he He knows he's lost. All he can do is sidetrack a few stories between now and the end. And by the way, the end of your story, it's already been written. Um, And so there's a way in which you can relax a little bit because you know how it ends. The story war is between the evil one who has tried to hijack your story of glory, his glory, to a story of isolation and destruction. Shame. Shame lives in that story. Brokenness lives in this story. You see, when you're exposed, you can go one or two directions. When you're exposed, you can either go to shame or to brokenness. Shame is ultimately about self. And all of Satan's stories are ultimately about self and isolation and selfishness. And God's stories are about connection, redemption. We're incredibly faithful to the stories. I think that's why God tells stories so much. It was a couple years ago now in Orlando. Um, <laughs> There are conventions all the time in Orlando. I mean, if you, you want to find out who your friends are, move to Oklahoma, because no one will come visit you unless they want to see you. <laughs> but if you just want to feel like people like you, move to Orlando, because everybody has to go down there at some point to, to go to Disney or something, you know, go to the beach. Or, and so it's like, so I'll hear from old students from years back going, I don't know if you remember, but you know, looking for a place to, to stay. Um, but there's conventions and stuff. A couple years ago, there was the Star Wars convention at the Orange County Convention Center. And I want to tell you, it was a sea of mental illness. Um, <laughs> 30, and no, I, I, I'm not kidding. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not exaggerating. You could shut your eyes and do this, and you would touch crazy everywhere, <laughs> everywhere you were. Um, 33,000 people from all over the world came to orlando dressed like wookies and jabba the huts and princess Leah's and it was just it was just crazy um, you could actually you could actually some people were getting tattoos they had a tattoo artist that you could get you know star wars tattoos there there's a great thing to make a, a vow of ink and blood for the rest of your life with a you know stormtrooper's face on you but um, you, you could actually get married. Um, you could choose the dark side or the light side. And I'm not kidding, I'm not making this up. Um, you could choose the dark side or the light side, and you I, I saw a, a couple with their little child, poor kid. Um, they, had, they had retrofitted their stroller to look like a, sm- a snow speeder, and the little kid was bundled in there with a Yoda hat. And I just, I just want to give him my card. I just want to say, I'm a psychologist. Uh, you, you may not know this, but you're going to need this later on, because this is an absolute crazy way to raise a child. Please, please. Um, but I'll tell you, we were sitting at a table like this. Skylar and I were on this side, and there were two guys on the other side, and they, they were arguing. Have you ever been in kind of a public setting where you know something could get, could get ugly, and he was like, and they were getting louder and louder, and so I started trying to listen in to see what were they fighting about? And, and they were fighting about whether or not an X-Wing fighter could go into hyperspace. <laughs> you know, and, I mean, and it is like they were going to just... And you and you think, you know, neither one of those things exist. You're, <laughs> I, I don't, you know, you, you wanted to, I don't mean to interrupt uh, what seems to be a good argument, but neither one of those things exists. But it was like, of course. How could they have gotten to Tatooine if if an X-Wing fighter couldn't have gone into hyperspace. And he goes, it was on a transport ship. You know, it's like, I mean, it was, they were arguing. Now, there's nothing wrong with Star Wars. It's a good story told well. But as I stood in the Orange County Convention Center, it was amazing to me. 30-some years after the original movie came out, people dressed people giving up their, their vacation time, bringing their families. And I thought, it is amazing how, com- how faithful people are to a compelling story. I mean, they're just incredibly faithful to it because it's a good story told well. And so they, they're enamored by that story. And so they, they put themselves in the story and they try to think about that story. And there's nothing wrong with, if you like Star Wars, my, my son Skylar loves that stuff. And he go. We go to a, a comic book store in, uh, in Orlando called Acme, and it is, you know, and they're really nice to Skylar when he comes, and and all those guys in there. Um, no women go in there <laughs> because they, but, um, but all the all the guys in the comic book store are really nice to Skylar and are really friendly, and um, nothing wrong with that. But you and I. That's a good story, but you and I have been invited to step into, be a part, and live the grand, part of the grand story of all of creation. This redemptive story of creation, of fall, of redemption, of denouement, this this shift from the beginning of history, this arc to the end of the Bible that begins with, with, with hope and beauty, and then there's a fall, and then there's oh, there, then there's the, the hope of a savior that comes in the, in the process of, of, of knowing him and changing, and then there's the promised land, the, the denouement. That's the story of the gospel. It's a story of ultimate redemption. And it's your story, because you belong to him. And he'll tell his story through your life. And so this weekend, I I don't know, I don't know how it'll happen. But my prayer, my prayer is that somehow you would be recaptured, that the Lord would use our time together, our conversations together, and you'd be recaptured by the fact that you have been given. A bit part in the grand story of God. Now, the reason I say a bit part is the star has already been chosen. And that part's already been taken. <laughs> but you know what was funny about the Star Wars convention? There would, you know, you had to pay to get autographs from people. I mean, and there are people that stand in line and and they had, you know, the person that played this person and that person would, you know. And, and you had to pay more or less based on, on the, their star power. And there was like Stormtrooper 8, you know, standing there in his still Stormtrooper outfit 30 years later, signing autographs. And it was like, he had a bit part. What's he doing? Making a living off this movie 30 years later. I mean, it was like, I mean, he was probably just out in the parking lot, you know, and and, and, um, and George Lucas said, hey, would you put this on and just run across the stage or did you do that? And now he is 30 years later going, yes, uh, I'll, I'll sign that. Because he had a big part and a good story. And you have a story, your story is that as well. God's grand story. And so let me tell you what our, our time, I don't want our time to be. Um, a lot of times a lot of times conferences like this become kind of a try harder place. And I, you know, where basically you come and the person, you don't really know if the person's for real or not. And they, they make it sound like their life's so perfect and, and wonderful and you just kind of leave going, I'm gonna try harder, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try harder. And, and you know, and, and, and it usually lasts a couple of weeks and that's about it. And I would hope that we would, uh, you know, I would hope that, it, that, that that would not be the case. I'm not here to fuss at you. I'm not here to tell you about all the mistakes you've made. I'm here to think with you about what it would be like if we thought those mistakes were part of a grand story that God wants to redeem. And um, didn't that person just go in there? (laughs) Now I'm confused. I thought he went in there. Did, did he did he crawl across the bottom? So, um, so um, I'm sorry. I'll try to get back on point. Um, so um, so our, that that'll be our time. Let me give you a couple of things that I'd like to just to give you some ideas of the kind of conversations I'd like us to have together around the tables. Um, I'm going to give you some opportunities to think about some things together. Um, and, and maybe just talk about some things. And let me just tell you a couple of rules about our conversations. Um, I, I've, I realized a few months ago, um, my next door neighbor's father died. Uh, they're a Cuban family and in Cuban culture, you take care of your parents. And so his, his elderly parents moved in with him and they were taking care of their, their parents and his father died. And I've lived next door to this guy for 13 years. And we've talked about our shrubbery, and we've talked about um, how are you doing, and we've talked about the weather, and I mean, I would say we've been nice to each other, but his father died. And I'm walking up to his front door, about to greet a man who just lost his dad, and I realized in 13 years, I don't think I've ever had a conversation with him that mattered I just, I just didn't. He's my next door neighbor. And so, I'd like to invite you and I to try to have conversations that matter with each other. Well, not just this weekend, but in the future, but especially this weekend together. There's a couple of things about conversations that matter. There's three types of conversations. We'll call it the conversational floor. A conversation can either be competitive, informational, or connecting. Let me talk about each of those for a second. The first type of conversation is a competitive conversation. And the goal of that conversation is to win, um, to get your point across, to make sure people know what you think, to make people make sure people got your ideas or your personality or your points. And that's the first type of conversation. And I would say to you, rarely are those conversations used in the kingdom of God. Because they're really just about yourself. I, was, I met with a physician who's a world-renowned neurosurgeon. And he's about my age. Um, so he's in his 20s. And... Um, <laughs> And he said to me, "I can't wait to retire." And I said, "Why? I mean, you—I mean, what a cool job you have! I mean, you—people seek you out all over the world. You're—you're um, you're one of the top in your field." And he had just heard me talk about conversations, and he said, "I've never, in my entire practice with all my colleagues, I don't think I've ever had anything but a competitive conversation." And it's exhausting. It's exhausting to just always talk in such a way where it's always about getting your point across or winning or making sure they heard you. They said, I don't know that I've ever had a non, a conversation with one of my colleagues that wasn't competitive, and it's exhausting and I want to get out of it. Huh. Competitive conversations. Um, most talk radio, competitive conversations, it's okay. I mean, it's, you can listen to that. That's fine. It's it's, it's more entertainment than anything else. Um, have you ever heard somebody on a talk radio say, "You know, I really didn't think about that till now," and <laughs> and I'm just so glad you pointed that out to me. And and my goodness gracious, I'm going to change my view completely based on the last three minutes. I, I I've never heard that happen. Usually, it's 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 people who who believe one thing, being told they ought to believe another. I mean, and, and they're just, they don't change because it's competitive. By the way, I won't be political at all anytime this weekend, I promise. It is good to get out of Florida right now. Because um, <laughs> Florida is one of those uh, swing states or whatever they're calling it, battleground states. And I mean, it is just... It's just bombarding all the time. I mean, it's, 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 it's exhausting because it's essentially competitive verbiage all the time, and it's exhausting to watch. Um, and by the way, this is not a political statement, just an observation. Um, you know mothers that say to their kids, you can grow up and be present? I think we need to stop saying that to our children. <laughs> um because no matter where you stand on this, I, I think we've got two people running that their mothers so that and they believed it and I don't think they should have. No, I'm just, just kidding. But it is exhausting because it's all competitive. It's all competitive conversations. And competitive conversations rarely change people's mind and are rarely used in the kingdom of God. Sometimes they do. If you read the Gospels, you'll see a few times where Jesus is conversation, usually it's with the Pharisees or someone who has misunderstood um, important truth. Every once in a while, he'll have that kind of conversation, but rarely. And Jesus is someone who could have won every conversation he ever had. Second type of conversation is informational conversation. And that's just what it is. It's the goal of that is to, is to get some points across. And and those conversations are often used by the kingdom of God. They're, uh, I mean, information, this is kind of an informational sort of deal. Um, But even though that that is sometimes not used as much as we think in the kingdom of God, the type of conversation I'd like you to consider trying to have more of would be connecting conversations. Conversations where the goal is to connect. Now, we're people who believe in truth. And sometimes I hear somebody say that. I go, well, we're going to stick with truth. Well, I think you can stick with truth and still be connecting. Look at Jesus with the woman at the well. Incredible story. Uh, Remember Even just the way that he engaged her with her lifestyle. When she says that, um, when, remember, he says, oh, what you say is correct. The person you live with is not your husband. I mean, he, and somehow she didn't feel condemnation from him as he told the truth because he'd done connecting ahead of time. Can I have some water? I spoke to her, had a conversation with her. See, you don't have to give up truth to have a conversation that echoes into eternity. And that's, that's what we want to do, isn't it? Don't we want to start having conversations that, that somehow matter? Don't I want to do something with my next-door neighbor every once in a while? Not every conversation, maybe not every moment of, uh, not not every time I see him, try to get to something deep or something, but at least least be open to the idea that God might want me to use that conversation to connect for his grand purposes, glory. And so, if we're going to talk about stories we ought to talk about how we're going to talk about those stories. And I would just say that, that um, I'd like you to try to think about conversations that matter. Real quick, let's just also talk about the anatomy of a good conversation. If that's kind of the, that's kind of the floor of a good conversation, uh, what's, what's the anatomy of a good conversation? And I would tell you, by the way, I'm going to save you $40,000 um, this is what I teach counseling students. So when this is over, just write RTS and ask for your degree. Uh, tell them that you were fast tracked through. Um, basically, in the counseling program, I just say this over and over again for two years. So I'm going to say it to you once tonight. You're smart enough. You'll just get it. And, and you, you know, I'll save you. Don't go and get a degree there. Just stay here and help people. Um, but. The anatomy of a good conversation that will echo into eternity usually begins with external to internal to eternal. We kind of talk about that. by the way, have you ever met somebody who has, goes directly to eternal and you, and you know and, and there's a few people that are truly evangelists, and that's probably appropriate for them. but for the rest of us, have just we've been with somebody who like every they, they can't have a normal conversation you know and, and it's like and, and, and it's like, how you doing? And they go, well, you know, you, well, I, I just see that gap right there.
2: <laughs>
1: that reminds me of the gap between us and God without Jesus. Amen. <laughs> and the guy's going, well, I, I just, I just saw a step, but okay. You know, I mean, do you know people like that? And you want to go, and, and you appreciate the fact that they love Jesus, but there's a part of you that's kind of embarrassed for them. It's like. Um, now, now there's, a, there's an exception to that. I mean, the, the evangelists, there, there, there are people that are truly evangelists that I think that's, that, that's kind of where they start their conversation. But I think the rest of us, a normal conversation starts external. How you doing? External, things that are going on out there. Um, uh, how you doing? How's, oh, you went to, you grew up in Auburn. Um, what, or... Um, you know, or you went to the University of Tennessee. I think they had a game with Georgia a few weeks ago. Um, neither team's doing very well now, by the way. Um, but that would be an external conversation. And that's the typical, that, that's, that's, an, that's a good thing. But rarely will your conversation matter if you just stay at external things because you're talking about others and things out there. And so in the counseling room, somebody's talking about my kids are driving me crazy or my husband's driving me crazy or my wife's driving me crazy. And the counselor will sit there and go, well, tell me more about your wife and tell me more about your kids. Well, they're not, the kids and the wives aren't in the room. They're, you're not going to help them. And so what's got to shift if the conversation is going to matter is it's got to go from external to internal. So what's it like to have kids who don't pay attention to you? Oh, so what's it like to feel like you're a single parent when you're with your spouse not involved? Oh, so what's that like to... And you just went from external to internal. You see, you can do something with internal. Um, you can talk about what's going on inside them. But most of us keep most of our conversations externally. We wonder, you know, we, we're kind of bored. You realize whenever you're talking to somebody and you're bored with them, something's not being said. This I mean, there's, there's, there's something missing because God doesn't write boring stories. He doesn't write boring stories. And so if you meet somebody who's just kind of like, you know, vanilla, you know, their their favorite color is plaid. I mean, they're just, you know, there's nothing to them. Um, You need to become curious. But what is it that they're not saying? Because God does not write a boring story. God writes an amazing story. And so... Um, but if you just stay with external, eventually you get bored. But some of us, that's the only thing we ever talk about. And so what I'll do with my counseling students, we have a, we have a, a, a window we watch counseling in, and I'll, I'll break in if, if things are, and they'll just be in there just jibber-jabbering, talking about, you know. And after a while, you let external go for a little bit, and then you, then you say, so what about you? What's going on in your heart about that? Oh, i bet you it breaks your heart that uh, your kids haven't responded the way you'd hoped. Oh, what's that been like? And now you're having a different conversation. You're in a conversation with a possibility of connecting and doing something that is eternal. If you just say as external things, um, you're, you, you get in trouble. you, know, you don't go anywhere. So the, the anatomy of a good conversation, it starts with external, and then it goes to internal. But have you, ever, have you ever met a counselor-y type person who is just always internal, and they just drive you nuts? It's like, you go, how you doing? And they go, no, I mean, really, how are you really doing? And you go, fine. No, 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 really, really, how? <laughs> I mean, in, inside your soul. I mean, inside the broken places of your essence how are you doing? And you want to go, yeah, you're really, really pretty good. Huh? <laughs> and and they, just, they just kind of, they just go to internal. And you want to go, you know, there's really more to life than just me. I mean, um, and then you want to hope that someone will move from internal to eternal. Well, what difference does this make? What's God up to? What, what is he wanting What's he doing? How's he writing the story of how could a story of redemption come out of this? How could redemption come from a story of a broken hearted parent? How could redemption come out of a story of an abused kid? How could redemption come out of a story of betrayal? Of betrayal? We know that betrayal was a part of Jesus' story and redemption came out of that. We know that brokenheartedness was a part of his story and redemption came out of that. So what would he be like? Now don't, don't, don't go too quick from external to internal and internal to eternal. But if you want to start having conversations that matter... If you want to start having conversations that echo into God's country, you wanna you wanna have conversations that are primarily about connecting and conversations that understand the, the anatomy of of how a conversation ought to go. Um Lastly, I think we need a little more normal in our spiritual relationships, a little more spiritual in our normal relationships. I mean, all the people that are in my Bible study know all about our faith. And then there's all our neighbors who probably are surprised we're having a Bible study at our house every every, Sunday night. And somehow, if our relationships are going to matter, and and our conversations are going to be important and the story is going to make sense I think we need a little more normal in our spiritual relationships and a little more spiritual in our normal relationships do do you know what I mean by that I mean are you like me where you've kind of got those separated out a little bit and and um, and and somehow you miss the the spiritual possibilities in regular conversations, and then you kind of get bored with just the same old conversations that don't seem very real or normal in your spiritual relationships. So, the longest introduction in the history of a conference um, to basically tell you I'm just honored to be here, and I'd like us to have good conversations together. And so um, I'm going to pray one more time as we get started to talk about story. Um, Father, you've met us here, and will, will you use this weekend in our lives? You know every person here. Father, for the people in this room that are too comfortable, would you use this weekend to disrupt them? For the people in this room that are disrupted... Would you use this weekend to comfort them? Father, it is humbling to think that you're telling your story in our lives. It's humbling to think that you already have the ending written. Give us the courage to have the faith to believe that. Father, there's people in this room that believe that they're disqualified because of their past. There's some people in this room that believe they're disqualified because they've become cynical about their future. So would you meet us in our present? And give us um, faith that you are the great redeemer of our past. Encouraged to know that you are the holder of our future. So we'll trust you with our time this weekend. Pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, what we're going to look at together is we're going to look at the elements of a story. Um, and we're going to use, you know, the, we're going to use kind of the secular people when they when they talk about story, they talk about the different uh, the different themes, the different uh, the, the different parts of a story. They would be plot, setting, character, conflict, and theme. And we're going to think about what would it be like if in each of those areas we started to believe the gospel was true, and that he was telling the story. Now, before that, just real quickly, um, I I just want to remind you that this is not just some sort of new age, tell me your story. Um, God uses narrative to tell his story. About a third of the Bible is story. Jesus could have won every conversation with everybody he ever ever had a conversation with, but instead he often told stories, parables. Those are his stories. They're God's autobiography stories, if you will. Let me tell you what the kingdom of God is like. It's like a, that's, that's a story. And so I, I want you to, This isn't some sort of heretical idea that that's that's gonna focus on ourselves. Um, God doesn't want you to focus your story on yourself. The reason you're supposed to look at yourself is not for the sake of self. You look at yourself for the sake of others. Remember what Jesus said take the log from your own eye before you worry about the splinter in someone else's. And so you look at your story, you look at what is God doing with your story, you look at what happened to you in your life, you look at what shaped you, you look at what's brought you to this place to bring you to this moment. You look at that because if you do, you will love others more effectively. If, if all we did is we spent a weekend together and we kind of pumped each other up going... Tell a good story. Tell a good story with your life. Make sure you're telling a good story with your life. Oh my goodness, what a waste of our time that would be. God's already telling a good story. The truth would be open your eyes to the story that God is telling and realize you're a part of that. Not tell your story. Tell your story. You're a star of your story no, you're a part of his story and he's the star. And so I could see if I were sitting out there because I, as you get older and I'm just old, I'm just an old crunchy old man as you get older you battle with cynicism. And I I find myself wrestling between with only kind of two choices sometimes between cynicism and vulnerability but sometimes I find myself, I'm either, I am either either kind of get, get cynical and go, I can't believe, and, or I become vulnerable and say, oh, Lord. What do we do with that? And the battle between cynicism and vulnerability. That's not just an old person's battle. It's just more salient to us as we get older. And, and I don't want you to get lost in a cynical story about self. But if I were sitting here, I think my my fear would be, is this going to be too self-oriented? Where's this in the Bible? Give me a proof text. You know, and I I would just say, um, please hear my heart. My heart is not that somehow we'll have some sort of humanistic awakening of understanding ourselves better. Because your self will be a mystery to you your whole life. but that you would become enamored by the one who's creating you and has created you and is telling your story. Does it make sense? All right. The first thing I'd like you to to think about with me is the idea of setting. Um, The... um, They did some research on marriage that I think is a pl- that will apply to stories and your life and whether you're married or not. What they found is that couples that were at risk for failure tended to have high conflict, low warmth, low fun, and low purpose. And I think about movies. And I think about, does that apply to a good story? If a story has too much conflict, not enough warmth, not much purpose, and isn't much fun, it's a movie you don't really want to see very often. And so we're going to talk about those four Categories as a setting of a good story. Let's start with warmth. A good story, a good life, a good marriage, a good family, a good team is high warmth. You know, they even have a name for this in movies. Um, Just interestingly enough. it, it's, it's called, um, in, in, a, in a movie, in the first, here's, here's the, when they do formula movies, when Pixar and Disney and all these people do their movies. What you'll find is the person that needs to be redeemed. So therefore, the kind of the person that you, you're not supposed to like, sometime in the first 20 minutes of the movie will do something that will draw you in. Because they found if you don't have that warmth, then people don't care if the person gets redeemed or not. And they even have a phrase for it. They call it saving the cat. That the character needs to save the cat in the first 20 minutes. You know, so, so I mean, that, that, I mean in, in, around Hollywood, around people doing storyboards about when they make movies, they will they will have the villain or the person that needs to be redeemed, the person who's struggling, the person... They'll have them do something that has a little warmth to it. Because they know if there's not any warmth, you won't care what happens to them. You don't care if they get better. I mean, they, they literally, I mean, they really, that, that's what it's called. It's called saving the cat. Next time you see a movie, um, next time you watch a movie, uh, watch for that. And you'll, and, and in, in many movies, especially the more formulaic ones that, that, that they kind of produce pretty quickly Uh, in almost every movie that's successful you'll find a moment where the the person that you wonder what's going to happen to him does something with a little warmth in it that's almost a little out of character to kind of draw you in to go oh I hope they get better you know I hope I hope Harrison Ford or Hans I hope Han Solo isn't quite as much of a jerk as he, but he did take those people on in his ship for some reason. I mean, there's something in those stories to try to get you to go, well, maybe he could, because you're hoping for redemption, maybe he might turn out better. It, it's in almost every story you've seen. Think about your own story. When you measure your life when you measure your marriage, when you measure marry your friendship, when you measure, oh, well, I'll try to use other language that from a I was speaking Klingon. No, um, if you um, if uh, by the way, um, I think I'm funny, <laughs> and I know I'm really not. But I think I am, so if every once in a while you'll just participate, um, it will increase the warmth in the room. So uh, <laughs> so, anyway, um, the, the idea, uh, th- th- think about your family, think about your marriage, think about you and your roommates, think about your Bible study, any team you're in. Probably the easiest thing to do for many of us is just think about your family, is it a high warmth or a low warmth family? And if you're going to tell a better story, if you're going to tell a better story that echoes into God's glory, it'll be a high warmth family. Does that make sense? Now, what do I mean by warmth? Um, connection. Would you like me to give me some... Would you like me to give you... Some examples of what of like what would create warmth in a family or in a marriage or in friendships um, but people companies, businesses spend thousands of dollars every year to hire people like me to come in and create teams we 're going to create teams and uh, and basically. Um, um, and, and basically they're just following some basic principles that God put in humanity that creates warmth. And then they charge you a, a billion dollars and they walk away and they go, but if you ever, has, have, any, have any of you ever been in one of, one of those things where somebody comes from another town with a briefcase and they're an expert and they're gonna build teams in your workplace? Anybody ever had to go through that? In your life? Um, All they do is they follow some basic principles of the way God made people. And and people feel closer. Let me just give you a couple of those. Um, What makes people feel close? What creates warmth? One would be a mutually agreed upon common task. Uh, When people have a task together, they feel closer. Uh, A lot of people from campus outreach here, true? I'll go slower for (laughs) (laughs) y'all. no, oh, no, that's not true, that's not true. I meant, um, I love, I, I, I actually was with Campus Outreach. Some of you I, I have met me before because I do a lot of stuff with Campus Outreach. I have great respect for you guys. Um, but what often happens on Campus Outreach summer projects is couples fall in love. But they, they're told at the beginning of the, the summer, we don't date, we don't date, nobody dates. We are genderless. <laughs> there are no men here, there are no women here. There are just workers for the kingdom of God. You will, not, you will not notice that there's a woman next to you or a man next to you. You, We are genderless. And that's kind of what, that's kind of what they tell him. How does that work? I mean, it, it, it's, it never works. I mean, how many, the people in Campus average, how many of you are married? Did any of you meet your spouse on, on a summer project? You see? <laughs> You see, you know, because the reason that doesn't work is because everything they do on a summer project would make you feel closer. The first, we have a mutually agreed upon common task. We're going to do something together. It makes you feel closer. Why did God get Adam to name animals? I don't know. I mean, that's, that's a theological question that probably doesn't need to be answered. But <laughs> I'll give you my best guess. And I sure wouldn't start a denomination based on this idea. (laughs) But clearly, it wasn't because God was tired. And he was like, I mean, clearly, it wasn't like God said, well, I've been creating, creating, creating. Aardvark, alligator, I don't know. Adam, come on over here, because i got to sit down. I mean, clearly, that's not the case. And I would suggest to you that I think one of the possible reasons for this—and again, this is not a theological question you need to think about at all after this moment—but <laughs> I would guess one of the reasons is that it created intimacy between He and Adam, because He invited Adam to be a part of His creation. Do something with me, Adam. Why did Jesus say to the one with the well, "You've got some water. Could you have some water with?" Me? I can make you fishers of men. Why would he say something like that? If there, if there's an invitation to a mutually agreed upon common task. And when people have that together, they feel closer. You know, an interesting phenomenon. Now, are, are y'all, you're not doing a building project or anything right now in this church? <laughs> because there's an interesting research that often, the year after a building project, the pastor loses their job. That's statistically true. And you go, "Well, that doesn't make sense. They just built a sanctuary gymnasium or a auction manorium or whatever it is, you know they, they, and everybody just gave extra money, and we you know, and we marched around the building and we painted ourselves and we put up cinder blocks and we did everything, and then we finally built it. Um, the The cafematorium is built, and we say and 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 and, and all of a sudden. Well, I, pastor, he, he's, just not, he's just not preaching the way he used to. I just, I'm just not as into it. Well, what happened? They had a mutually agreed upon common task that they were committed to and they're excited about. And all of a sudden, now that's gone. And they don't feel as close. Uh, what do they do when those, those, rec- those people come to try to make teams? They give them something obnoxious to do. I mean, they'll, they'll put Legos out. I mean, these, this is true. They'll, they'll, take, they'll take executives from IBM and put them on the table and go, build a bridge together. And these, you know, MIT <laughs> PhDs are going, well, we could put this here. And, and, when all, and the guy's laughing all the way to the bank. And they're, and they're going to they're say at the end, you know, we feel a lot closer. Why? They got a mutually agreed upon common task. What happens in our marriages? After a few weeks, a few months, a few years, You got your job, I got mine. How was work today? Fine. Remember when you first got married and her job was your job and your job was her job? Remember when everything didn't seem divided? You see, the reason sometimes we don't feel close is we quit doing the things that make people feel close. And so you'll build warmth one way is with mutual agreement upon common task. What's another way to build warmth? I think back to campus outreach. These kids aren't supposed to pay any attention to each other, but they're falling in love all over the place. Why? They had a mutual agreement upon common task, and then they also had new and novel experiences together. New and novel experiences make you feel close. So, the, what do they do when they want to build teams? They go, We're going to go do a ropes course where they take a group on a missions trip and they have them live in, a, live in a... If you've ever seen the place that campus outreach people live in the summer, uh, they live in a, in a little ghetto together. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, they, and, they, and they do this stuff together. And in the middle of that, they, 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 they're doing new and novel experiences together. And haven't you heard a new couple that just met? And they're going, oh, we're so much alike. And you, and you, go, and you listen in and they go, we both like ketchup on our french fries. And you go... Well, there's something to build a marriage on right there. <laughs> but what really has happened, well, they, they're doing something new together. And that newness creates warmth. I mean, that's even physiologically wired in your body. It's called sensory adaptation. Have you ever gone to somebody's house who has, like, lots of cats? Does anybody here have, like, more than five cats? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying, I don't, I don't want to hurt your feelings. I'm just... I'm just Anybody with more than five cats here, in here? Okay, great.
2: <laughs>
1: their house smells. They invite you to their house. They invite you to their house. And they're going to invite you for dinner. And you walk in the door, and you go, oh, what am I doing? And you, I mean, you're going, oh, hairball. I mean, you, you're thinking, how are we going to eat in here? And, and you look, and there there on the side of their living room floor is a a box full of feces and you think <laughs> why this place is horrible <laughs> what happens 30 minutes later you think you think who clean this up <laughs> we have a we have a husky we have a dog that has a, I mean, this is more information than you want to know, who has this, it is, it, he smells. Um, <laughs> we don't notice it anymore. People come in our house, and they go, oh, it's good to be here. And, but, you know, after a few minutes, our Bible study comes over every Sunday night, and in the first few minutes, they're all not wanting to sit down, <laughs> thinking what's, but, but, you know, but after a little while, they sit down, there and they're fine. We eat dinner together every Sunday night, and, you know, I know that's what's going on with them. It's sensory adaptation. God made your nervous system to respond to new and novel stimulus. That's how He made you physiologically. He also made you that way emotionally and spiritually. You notice new and novel things. You know, I mean, it's it's true. Um, And and God has so designed us so in such a fascinating way. You know that there's micro movements in our eye all the time. Do you know why there's those movements? Because if those weren't those movements, you 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 looked at something long enough, it would start to go away. Because our nervous system is built for sensory adaptation. It's fascinating. It's just fascinating. What happens after we've been married a while? It's Tuesday. (laughs) Pizza night. (laughs) Oh, Thursday, what are we going to do? Oh, we got... Bible study and then (laughs) chilies. Well, what are you going to get at Chilies tonight? Oh, same thing I get every night. (laughs) Their taco salad. Oh. And then one of them will say to one of their friends, I don't know what's happened in our marriage. We're just, we just don't seem to have any excitement. (laughs) (laughs) You haven't done a new or novel thing together in years. Now, Tradition's important. Tradition gives you a sense of stability in a marriage and a relationship and friendships. But new and novel experiences. Sometimes when your faith starts to become wooden, do something new with your spiritual life. Do something new with your devotional life. Read and study in a way differently. Do um, read a different translation. A, a, a friend of mine who's trying to learn Spanish. Um, is now trying to do his devotions in Spanish even though he's, he's probably third grade level. Um, and, and the reason is because it, it's new and novel instead of, so you want to build warmth. This, this is not a side note. Side note. Um, this is the idea of, remember I said, setting of a story. We want a story with, with high warmth. We want to avoid a low warmth story. And so, what are the practical ways to bring warmth into your stories, into your lives, um, into your spiritual life, into your marital life, into your work life, into your friends' lives? A uh, third one would be vulnerability. People follow strength, but they're drawn to vulner- vulnerability. I often wonder why um, Easter week, every year, every week, every passion week, I'm struck by how vulnerable God is with his creation. It didn't need to be that way. Um, I mean, literally the mocking of Jesus. uh, and, And again, this is not a theological thing to start a denomination over, but I've often wondered why God darkened the sky on the cross, finally at the cross. Jesus says it's finished. There's an earthquake. The, the curtain is torn and God blocks the sun. And I think that and, I, I, and this is just speculation. Don't, don't die on this hill ever. But I think God's said you've seen enough. You've seen, my son, we've been I've been vulnerable before my creation. Because vulnerability invites relationship. And and it does. Vulnerability invites relationship. And so what happens to at campus outreach mission strips? They're doing new and novel things. They've got a mutually agreed upon common task. And they're vulnerable. I don't know if I can do this all summer. I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I, I can do that. And all of a sudden, they're saying, "Where well, you go on a mission trip, and you, you said, I've never gone to another country before. I don't know if I can, and you're vulnerable before each other, and you're still feeling like, well, I think this is my spouse in the future. It's like, no, just somebody who's doing something that creates warmth with you. It's amazing, God does these things with us. He's vulnerable before his creation, and he doesn't need to be. See, God doesn't need anything from us. So the fact that he chose to be so open-handed with his creation and the the fact that he chose to allow his son to to endure um, mockery and appear to somebody who didn't know that he might be weak, (laughs) there's nothing weak. I'm about passion, weak. There's nothing weak about the cross, but there is something vulnerable about it. The fact that the God of the universe would allow His Son to be strapped up between thieves, vulnerably placed before people who didn't even know who He was, and mocked, and then stabbed, and that's a God who is inviting relationship he was inviting intimacy he was inviting warmth met with a woman this past week who's a muslim convert and uh, she was talking about how much she misses her family because she's lost her family now and she said sometimes she wishes she'd never met jesus because she lost her family and so much. And then she said, but I think God's mad at me for thinking that. And I said, oh, you learned your Muslim faith well because you were taught that you had a God who was angry that must be appeased. And the gospel teaches that you have a holy and righteous God who graciously was vulnerable before his creation to bring his creation unto him. Um, you see, vulnerability brings warmth, intimacy. Um, and you want to know why your story seems wooden, why your friendships seem predictable why your story doesn't lean toward redemption? Because nobody really knows you because you're not vulnerable with anybody. Nobody knows your struggles or your fears or your, they just know your, what's good. I I don't know if you remember, but I make all the students in my pastoral counseling class go to a 12-step meeting an alcoholics meeting. And, um, and, and they can't go in there and say, hey, I'm just a pastor in training. Um, you know, don't... Um, they have to go um, and, and experience uh, a room full of broken people trying to get better. And what many of them say to me after they go is it was... They wish the church were more like that. Because... The people were vulnerable and broken before each other, wanting to get better. Instead of what often we have in our churches is we're, we, don't, we don't ever we'll let people know us. You see, if you're loved and not known, it's shallow. If you're known and not loved, that's your greatest fear. But if you're known and loved. That's God's type of dealing with you. For he knows you and he loves you. Well, we're trying to think about how do we create warmth in our stories. Because you see, God creates warmth in his story. His story is full of warmth. The Bible is so full of people who are a mess and and people that fail, and people that struggle. The Bible is almost embarrassingly so. And so his story, the one that you're a part of, is full of vulnerability. And so if you want a story that's compelling, you want a story that that echoes into eternity, you you want it to be one that is high warmth. And for high warmth, there's going to have to be vulnerability. What else just creates, real quick, what else creates warmth? I mean, uh, um, um, just very simply, um, focused time together creates warmth. Um, I often have said to, to, to people that are, um, I've often said to, to, <laughs> to my own kids, though I don't think they ever listened, um, you can choose who you have You can choose who you spend time with, you can't choose who you fall in love with. And and what I meant by that is that focused time together creates warmth. creates history. And so, um, focused time, that that creates warmth. What else creates warmth? I'm going to give a couple that are a little more about relationships than about just in general. But... um, Shared feelings and shared dreams. If you want to know a man, know his dreams. A man quits dreaming. There's something broken. If you want to know a woman, know her feelings. Now, don't misunderstand. Also know a woman's dreams and also know a man's feelings. Just the man may not know that he has feelings, and so it might take a while to... We get to that part, um, but uh, that creates warmth uh, in a relationship. To know, to know someone's uh, dreams, their hopes, to know someone's feelings. Um, so, what do you think of the movie? Oh, that's okay. Um, what did you? But if I tell you what I felt about the movie, that puts me in a category with nobody else because I'm the only one with my personal experience of history. So feelings create warmth. So f- shared feelings, shared dreams, mutually agreed upon common tasks, um, um, new and novel experiences. Vulnerability, focus time, and then physicality. Um, and this is a little bit of a stretch, but it's probably one of the most important concepts of of our faith is the idea of the incarnation. That the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The idea, you know, in most of the rest of the world, we don't share Christ by saying he loves you and has a wonderful plan for his life. That doesn't sell really well in third world. What sells better in third world is the God we're presenting to you is a God who understands suffer, suffering. The God we're presenting to you understands struggle understands sorrow and understands your hopes. And that, that stirs in a way that it's all going to get better, doesn't Because they don't know that life will really get better. And their wonderful plan, I mean, they're just wondering how they feed their kids and are they going to get enough water that day? And so, you know, the amazing... Idea of the incarnation. That God showed up, physically showed up. That the God of the universe got the dirt of the kingdom of God and the the dirt of our this earth that he made under his fingernails. And that he walked on our dusty roads and he he put flesh on his divinity. Ah, the incarnation the physical touch of divinity into our world it creates intimacy it's the it's a powerful part of the story of god the incarnation the word became flesh and dwelt among us that there was a time when there was a time when uh, when you could if you have been living at that moment, where you could have, you could have touched divinity. Remember when he said to Thomas, when Thomas said, unless I touch the, the scars, and Jesus said, there's something about physical touch that creates Intimacy. Incarnation—the idea I showed up, the idea that I came, that I rolled up my my rolled up my sleeves and became a part of your life and your story—that is a. Um, I mean, that's an amazing uh, reality and an invitation to a story that uh, of God's story, and so. The first thing I said to you is that we're we're talking about setting and in a good story, one of the settings is you want to have high warmth. That makes for a good good story. God's story is a high warmth story. Most of the movies that you enjoy are a a high warmth story. Your marriages that are supposed to reflect the kingdom of God are supposed to be high warmth. Your friendships are supposed to be high warmth. And if they're not, that's a sign that there's something broken in your story. It could be you. Maybe you just don't know how to be warm anymore and be vulnerable because you've been so hurt. Or maybe it's it, well, for whatever reason, what is the, 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 the invitation to have a, a story that's high warmth? That's a story that... Mirrors the story of God. And remember this seminar is not about how do we tell our story better but how do we connect with his story better. And his story is a high warmth story. Second thing um, is um, marriages that are in trouble, stories that are in trouble, are low conflict, or at least they're not high conflict. I, I took Skylar to some Marvel movie. I, I've seen more, I've seen more, I, I'm not, people ask me, have you seen this movie or that movie and it's an, a movie that adults should see? They go, oh no, I've not seen that. I've seen every, you know, movie kind of geared toward, you know, teenagers for the, for the, that have taken place in the last 28 years. Um and, um, and I, I can't remember if, but it, I think it was the last Spider-Man movie because there's been like 11 different Spider-Man movies but I remember leaving the movie just exhausted because it was like conflict after conflict after conflict and right when it's like whew finally this is resolving a little bit then it's like ah, something came up you know and it's, just, it's like conflict everywhere all the time 24 hours of conflict and it's like and I hated the movie. The oh, I know one that I just saw that was that way. Batman versus Superman. What a disappointing movie. My whole life as a kid, I thought, wouldn't that be kind of cool? I mean, I mean, those are the questions you ask as a kid. Would it better be the Flintstones or the Jetsons? I mean, that's the questions you ask. Could Batman beat Superman? I mean, those, you know, Ginger or Marianne? I mean, those are the questions of a life. <laughs> that last one... None of you are too young. <laughs> but um, but those, those, were the, those were the questions. And I remember taking Schuyler to that because he loves those kind of movies and thinking, oh, this is <coughs> so disappointing <coughs> because it's so conflict ridden. It's just, it, there's just no, it was just so conflict ridden. And conflict is inevitable we live in a fallen world and at some level the best way to understand story hear this the best way to understand story is that somebody wants something and they have to go through conflict to get it i mean the most simple way to say what's a story what makes a good story a good story is there's a character somebody who wants something and they have to go through a conflict to get it the grand story of god is there is a character god who wants something, Earth, the world redeemed back unto himself. The effects of sin to be um, um, built, um, taken away. And he goes through conflict, the, the, the sacrifice of his son, and then the sanctification of his people to get that. That's what makes it a good story. And every good story follows that same basic idea. You've got a character who wants something has to go through something to get it. Conflict is what you have to go through. So conflict's inevitable. I mean, conflict will happen in your story. Conflict is a, it'll happen in your marriage. It'll happen with your friends. It'll happen, um, conflict's inevitable. So when somebody says, oh, a good story has no conflict in it, that's, that's just not true. Um. A good story has conflict that is redeemed in it. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to talk about conflict. We might be able to do it tonight. I'm going to talk about conflict from a biblical perspective and think, how do we deal with conflict? Since conflict's inevitable, how do we deal with that? But for now, let's just settle with the idea that when somebody says to you, We've been married 20 years. We've never had a fight. That's not a good thing. That's a sign one of them has been dead for 20 years. (laughs) Uh, The conflict is somewhat inevitable. But but a high conflict, a highly conflicted story uh, is not a story that that, that echoes in, in, in God's economy the way that and so you want when you tell your story, when you want your story to connect with God's, it's it's a high warmth, not high conflict. Third thing that's a, that's available in a um, in a good setting for a story. And um, a good setting for a story, you want high purpose. You know, it's really interesting. Um, um, what, what's really interesting about story um, when they and, and high purpose, uh, when they found out? Uh, Victor Frankl. You ought to, every educated person ought to read the book um, "Man's Search for Meaning." It was written by a Jewish guy by the name of Frankel, who was a prisoner of war during World War II. Just a, a classic read. Not a Christian read. It's just a classic read. And here's what he found out. He found out in the concentration camps that the strongest didn't necessarily live and the weakest didn't necessarily die. Like you would have thought. He found that the people who had purpose and meaning tended to live. The people without purpose and meaning tended to die. And that that seemed to be more resilient. That purpose seemed to be more resilient than physical strength. Hmm. Um, you've got to understand. You've got to understand that your story God's story is a high purpose story. And what sometimes happens is Satan hijacks us with smaller purposes. Now I'm going to offend some of you right now. I just want to tell you right now. I'm going to offend a couple of you and we're about to take a break and you can go on home and I'm sorry. <laughs> and and, and before, I, before I say let me, let me just tell you I like Dave Ramsey and we actually have done Dave Ramsey and we're almost to like baby step 15. Um, I mean, we, we've, we, we've sold off our, you know, we are we've sold our children and, uh, <laughs> you know, we're out of debt and we have emergency fund and we, and we, you know, we paid off our cars and, you know, all that stuff. Um, so, so I, we, we started that about six years ago. And, uh, and, and last year, when we were doing our taxes, I was telling Mona kind of where we were, how well we'd done in our plan. And she said, you know, I'm glad we've, we've done this because we're trying to fund Skylar's life after we die. It's my greatest, my greatest fear greatest embarrassment would be that my son would be left to a minimum wage government worker. It keeps me up at night. That's what I pray about the most. What a failure that would feel like to go into eternity with that unsettled. But Mona said, I think we were more generous before we started this. And I said, yeah, but we've gotten out of debt, and we've, we've, done, we've, worked, we've worked hard, we've done what we're supposed to do. Now we can be more generous after we finish fully funding this and that. And, and, we're, and we are, we're doing better in, in all those areas. But I think in some ways, I mean, live below your means, and you know, don't go in credit card debt and all that stuff. I, I agree with all that junk. But there's a higher purpose than that in your life. And sometimes we sell ourselves for lesser purposes. I'm going to be debt free. Well, that's great. But maybe there's more to your life than just being debt free. Maybe you're supposed to be the only person that knows your neighbor well enough that when their life falls apart, they come to you and say, hey, how do you pull this off? I know you've had a hard life too, but somehow there's something different. Maybe there's something more than just being... And, and, and I think what Satan sometimes does, because he's so crafty at selling a cheaper story than God's story of glory. And so sometimes what he does is he takes a good thing, like getting out of debt, and makes that your purpose. And and you get out of debt. But if I don't think anybody on their deathbed is going to go. But you know what, honey? We've fully funded our emergency fund. (laughs) I'm ready for you, Jesus. I don't think so. I think they'll sit and they'll say, because I've been around people in those moments. I think they'll talk about memories of relationships and, and wondering if their life really mattered, wondering if they'll be remembered, wondering how quickly they'll be forgotten sometimes I think what Satan does is he, he gives us smaller purposes to become so focused on because we only fight battles we think we can win. And so we, so we fight a little battle about this or a little battle about that and God would say, oh, I've made you for bigger battles. Don't you know you're supposed to be a hero? See, that's what my son was saying. He knows it. His seven-year-old cognitive mind knows that he was made for big purposes. Have you forgotten that? If you have, you've lost part of the grand story God's trying to tell. So it's 10 minutes after eight. And we're going to take a break. Um, and we'll go. And, and about eight forty, we'll come back. And we're going till midnight. I <laughs> we, we, we just just said that for the campus outreach folks because they they don't even start working until after midnight. <laughs> um, so we're going to take a short break. We're going to get you know jacked up on on cookies and sugar and then we're going to go for about an hour or so after that and i've got some homework i want you to work on tonight before we come back and kind of work on our storyboards tomorrow so take about a t- about a break until 8 40 30 minute break